If you would, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 6, if you have a copy of God's Word. Romans, chapter 5, verses 6. We're going to be going through just one verse tonight, but to give some context after this verse, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. So Romans, chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. God says to us in his word, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we, now, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is the word of the Lord to us. The Apostle Paul begins verse 6 by basically in some way arguing again for the case that he presented in chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. So Paul, if you are familiar with any of his works in scripture he is a great person who argues a case, backs up that case, rebacks up that case, continues to back up that case, and then as if you couldn't hear it enough, he re-argues that case and continues to just talk about the love of God as it reconciles sinners. So what he's been doing before our passage tonight is for five verses, he's been talking about the new life that can be found when it's placed in Christ, and he describes some things of what regular normal Christians go through, that be suffering or joy or having expectation of the hope to come. And what he's going to do in this passage is he's going to ground all of that argument with one verse that in our case really sums up just the joy and the amazing love of the gospel. If you are looking at this text, tonight I want, you be able, I want you to be able to walk away after staring at it in the depths of this verse, not only in the claim that Paul gives us, but also in the awareness of a better understanding of God's love for you as a Christian. As Christians, it's, it's often our case that we want to know many things about God, and, and there is nothing wrong with that, spending hours and days and years and a lifetime just trying to understand the depths and the fullness of who God is. But in our case, we don't want to overlook the pinnacle of who God is, and that is love. So I want us to walk away, being able to walk away from this text, knowing what it, what it looks like to be loved by God. You might look at this passage and see Paul's words and go, I know, I've heard it. I've seen it. This is now chapter 5. I've heard it now at least five times or 10 times or 15 times. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you would hear it, it seems like, hundreds and maybe thousands of times of God's overwhelming love for you. But if you're ever bored with hearing the particular love that God has for his people, one, you might just be living in a hole. Never experiencing life around you, never facing joy or harshness, hardship or overwhelming excitement, or maybe you just don't understand the love of God at all. Think of someone who is a fan of a championship team. They can probably tell you every year that their team has won a championship, right? 
oh, the 70s were great, or the 80s were great, or the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s. I'll brag to you about that. Never get tired of saying how good my team is. Do we ever get tired of hearing about how good God is to us? So here, Paul, like any good teacher, is going to be reminding us just how loving and just how good God is because he knows that we are forgetful people. Far too often we let life be life, creep up and distract us from God's grace and God's love. One of the guys I looked up to in college, much older than me, a disciple of many men, always walked around being able to memorize much of scripture. He had note cards with him all the time, front and back. He would just walk around aimlessly on campus where he would disciple young men. And I loved that as he would keep adding verses and verses to, a, to his deck of index cards, the one that he always left at the top was John 3.16 because he said, I never want to get any farther than understanding that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that anyone who believes in him should have eternal life. And here in our case, in this text, it looks like Paul is almost exegeting that amazing passage. He's taking that truth that is said about Jesus himself, and in another way, he's describing it and he's playing out, bringing the attention of what John 3.16 says about us here in Romans 5.6. It looks like Paul is bringing the attention back to God, an amazing back and forth as we read scripture of God's grace being poured out to us and us recipients of his grace giving honor and glory back to him. Paul has already written multiple times, like I said, in the book of Romans up to this point, many, many things about God and his love. But he says here in in very succinct words, in just a couple of phrases, he describes God's love to God's people as if, you know, you might be dropping your kid off of school or you might be taking your kid to move away or maybe you're about to walk your daughter down the aisle and you want to give that last moment of advice, that last moment thing to say to him in a quick line. He says, Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So tonight, I want to ask us as we dive into this text, why does Paul remind us of this? Why is it important for Paul as he argues through scripture to people for all time, or at least thousands of years later to us, why is he reminding us of this? I think not only because he wants to remind us because we are forgetful people, but also I see him having a different object in mind through this word, through this section of scripture. In chapter three, his point was that there is no method, no way of justification apart from the truth of Christ's death and resurrection. But here on top of that, I think he's not just concerned with the message of salvation, but also the love that created that salvation. He wants to bring our attention back to God and his glory. So it looks like Paul can't help himself but just to burst out with this short phrase of God's love. And so we'll be looking into it for a little bit. There are three things I hope to bring out of this text. The first one is, all of these are around, we can remember God's love. And the first one is, we can remember God's love because of his provision. So we as sinners can remember God's love as redeemed people can remember God's love because of his, God's provision. The first thing you'll notice when you look at this verse which shows God's love is that he's the one who provides it. So when we think of God's love, when we are recipients of God's love and his grace, we need to remember that by the Father, by the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God actually provides his love for us. 
Now, some of you are, especially some of you men, you're meeting on Friday and Saturday mornings and you're going to be slowly walking through what the Trinity looks like, how we can understand the Trinity from Scripture. One of the things you might encounter is that people often love, non-believers love to pit the Trinity up against each other. As if the Father is trying to do something and the Son is trying to almost set aside the anger of God the Father. Like they're fighting against each other. Like if the God of the Old Testament, you might hear people say, had his way, all of us would die in his wrath. But thank goodness that the Son didn't want it that way. And here we see that that's not the case at all. That by the desire of the Father and through the sacrifice of the Son, God provides his love. So we can just look at this first phrase. It says, for while we were still weak, we can see that God's love is because of his provision. God's love is being extended to us. And while we were still weak, we receive God's love, not because of anything we've done. Actually, we receive God's love in spite of what you and I have done, regardless of who you are or the amazing things that you might have done for yourself or for other people. God's grace is not rewarded to you because of that. The scriptures say that while we were still weak, and in other parts of scripture, it says even more emphatic phrases. And the word weak here is a great word. Some of your uh, versions might have helpless or hopeless or weakness while we were in our weakness. Because that word brings about a physical connotation. All right, all of us can picture being weak at something. You know, sometimes a lot of bags of groceries are weak for people. Maybe lifting a lot of weights is heavy for people. Or lifting cars for some of you may be pretty heavy if you can try at that. When I was in high school, I loved playing football, and I was a fullback, which means I was on offense. Um, And there was this one time I definitely remember, and I don't remember the circumstance of it, but I was put in on defense for our team. So I was put in at defensive end, which if you don't know anything about defensive ends, they're taller than me, and they're buffer than me, and they go up against people who are taller than me and buffer than me. And so so there I am in the game. I have no idea what the play is. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. And only for three plays, I just get pummeled left and right. That, that idea of being physically incapable of doing something, this text brings out. But it doesn't just stop there. What, what Paul is saying is that you're not just physically incapable, but actually, actually also you are spiritually incapable. In this truth, we are, you know, I remember someone saying, I can't remember his name. Yes, I do. R.C. Sproul. I remember him saying that many people like to place our faith as if we are drowning and we just need someone to save us. We just need a, a life raft thrown out for us and then we'll be okay. But then he reminds us that we are not drowning. In our sins, we are at the bottom of the sea. We are dead because of who we are naturally as sinful people. We are weak, the scriptures say. Nothing we can do can have us receive a reward unto ourselves. And so God provides his love for us. Ephesians 2 and verse 4, it says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, Paul says elsewhere. Friend, Paul is saying that the Christian life has true hope, in true peace, in true joy for verses and verses and verses. And he's backing all that up by saying, 
nothing from you gave you that grace, gave you that peace, gave you that joy. So there is nothing in you that should doubt that that joy and that peace and that grace is real. You can have hope in eternal life with Christ because nothing you did in your life ever set you apart and gave you the love of God. But it was God providing his love that set you apart. And so still we should remember God's love because of his provision for we were weak, but also Paul says that not only were we weak, but also at the right time. God provided this love. So under this first point, if you're going A, now we're at B, at the right time, this next phrase there, this shows at the right time. Some of you might have it in your scripture as saying in due time. What this shows is that Christ's death wasn't a metaphor. You know, there was a time and a circumstance where this happened. It actually happened. Not only did it happen, but he's saying that at the right time, it wasn't an accident. And not only was it on purpose, but it was for a purpose. God's love for you was for a purpose, not just on purpose, not just at an accident. And not only did it have a purpose, but it was designed. It was called for. Jesus came in particular in order to do it. And he died. But not in the nick of time. Not just in time. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, it says. Paul's theology of Jesus is not just focused on the outpouring of Christ's death on the cross, but also on the very circumstances of which that death, how that death occurred. Christ's death, providing, God providing eternal, reconciled love took place according to the appointed time chosen by God. Just in this verse, we we hear echoes of other parts of Scripture. You might naturally think of Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It's even said more, more explicitly in John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes as he's on the cross to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then later, later in a testimony in Acts, like we've seen months ago, this Jesus, it said, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the reason I think that Paul is highlighting this and why I'm reading all these supporting passages is it just want to bring out that God's love, his eternal love, his love that gives peace, his love that gives eternal life, was not an accident. He didn't randomly think of you. He didn't pocket dial your number and you picked it up and he goes, well, you know, since you answered. Oftentimes we we think so much in occurrence or chances or maybe this is good karma or maybe that's why life is working out the same way, but God's love to his people is no accident. It's not a mystical occurrence. It's not by chance. It's not going to slip away. For at the right time, the Son of God was sent by the Father to die so that God's beloved can be forever reconciled. I wonder, though, if you place your trust in God with the same confidence that Paul here boasts of God's timing. I mean, do you really with all of your being place your trust in God in the same way that Paul here says that in just the right time, God sent his son? 
No molecule is out of control, yet is the pattering of your heart flickering in fear of wondering if God is in control. Here you see that God in this text is providing love by grace and his love is by his appointment. Appointing love not just by power, but appointing his love according to his perfect time. The wrath of God because of the death of Christ will never be poured out on his people because at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There are so many times when when I personally encounter things or when I see other people encounter things where there's this glimpse of fear of, is this happening because God doesn't love me? You know, did I lose my job? And that's what it feels like to not be loved by God. Did I lose a child? And that's what it's like to not feel the love of God. Friend, nothing is accident, accidental in God's providence over all of his creation, especially his particular love for his people. Now, on the flip side of that, if you're not in Christ, those things that happen in life that make you question they should make you question. God will not place his wrath on any of his people, but God will place his wrath on his enemies. And those things are are like wake-up calls to those of you who may not be in Christ, that that is is not the worst that is to come to people who are enemies of God. Friend, if you're not trusting in God who reveals himself through his scripture. I hope you will. And frankly, if you're not trusting in God, I have no idea what you're trusting in. Like, just think about it. What, What are you basically trusting in? You know, money, your job, hoping your wife comes home to you, hoping your kids grow up well, hoping everything works out. In your weakness, can you really say that? In God's perfect time, He sent his son to die, to offer you eternal life. Trust in that. He calls you to turn from the life you think you hold on to, but you have no command of time, do you? He calls you to place your trust in his control because if we're honest, we're all very weak and we don't really have control of much. And so ask God to forgive you and he will stand for you in the same way that Christ stood in your place. So just at this first part, we can remember God's love because of his provision for us. He actually gave love to us in the person of Jesus. So we can remember him by that. Secondly, we can remember God's love because of Christ's death. If you just think of the structure of this text. So what you got is you got a couple of phrases. What you got here is insisting that the Christian life is one of hope because while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So if you just take a step back and let's just assume, as Christians know to be true, let's just assume that Paul actually meant the words that he was writing there. What we've got is we've got a couple of phrases and one clause. So you might think of a participle clause there at the beginning, while we were still weak. Then you got a preposition at the right time. And then you got another prepositional phrase for the ungodly. And you're thinking, is this guy really going into the Shirley Method system? Absolutely. If you just take away those clauses and those phrases, what do you have? An argument for God's overwhelming grace and peace. Why does he say that? For Christ died. The noun and the action stay there. So let's remember God's love because of Christ's death. There is... 
Nothing that can withhold our joy because while we were still weak, Christ died. At the right time, for us, Christ died. For the ungodly, Christ died. This text, in fact, these two words could be meditated on and marveled at for hours and hours. In the first point from our text, I told you that God's love is thought of by God, conceived of by God, planned out by God. And his love was and is one of ultimate purpose. It gives peace. It provides hope. It provides triumph. But that is not the most amazing part. The most amazing part is that the love of God was accomplished, carried out, and done by and forever given to because of, if we just gaze at those words, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. Even though God's followers are the recipient of God's grace, it is Jesus Christ who delivers it to the people who need it so much. And the word Christ is not to be overlooked here. Don't just run past the noun to get to the action. Christ, do you remember who he is? Do you know him from the scriptures? Do you know him from the testimony of of other people? In order to provide true love, Christ was sent. He's how you can see the love of God. Oftentimes we we long for God to show himself more and more. As if we could ever receive more of God's grace than Jesus himself. As you look and try to find the love of God through anything. If you're doing anything other than looking to Christ, you're looking in the wrong direction. You don't have to be in a special place or at a special time or maybe just alone in your car to wonder and gaze most righteously about the love of God. You just have to think about the truth of Christ from the scriptures that Christ died for the ungodly. If you're ever in doubt about the love of God, consider what happened at the right time. Don't don't just believe this passage, though. It's written about us where in Romans 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us written by the same person, Paul. And maybe you're a questioner of the scriptures and you don't really think that things in the New Testament have much countenance for the things of today, totally different culture. You know, okay, let's just leave that argument on aside, even though it's a poor one. Let's look thousands of years back before people even knew who Christ was. Let's go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds we are healed. Most perfectly describing someone who would come years later and would testify not only about that, but other people would look at him and go, you are the Messiah who the scriptures testify about. And within all this glory, within all this majesty of who Christ is, don't forget about his love. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The giver of love, the provider of love also gives us faith and peace and access to grace with God, joy, being able to suffer with hope, endurance to live, righteous character, true hope and knowing what we will be, where where we will be when we die. All those things come from Christ dying and giving over the love of God to us. Don't get too carried away with that. See and remember the love of God so near and close to you. All those things can come to you because Christ died. And Paul doesn't want you to keep on reading without being engulfed with God's love. 
God's love comes to his people because of Christ's death. Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, died on the cross at a real time, in a real place. Many, many witnesses. Everyone could give testimony to a person who lived and a person who died. But what many did not believe is that they died, that person died for the ungodly. How does that express God's love? Just someone dying? It's by his death, the scriptures say, that he actually saves us. All other things about Christ are glorious. He's perfect. He's holy. But his death is actually how we are saved from our sins. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says that the suffering by death is how he tastes death for everyone. What is described scripturally is that the death that you should die because of your sins is the death that Christ actually died in the place of your sins. So the wrath that you deservingly should have been brought on your shoulders, Christ absorbed all that wrath on his. So that when God looks at you, he sees the work and the willing desire of his son in place of you. And when he sees his son as a son is up in glory, reigning and ruling over all things, he sees his son's brothers and sisters, the redeemed of those who place their trust in Christ. Christ died in this text. And we can remember God's love because Christ died. So just look one, one word over one word to your right, it says Christ died for. Now other passages in scripture use different, different prepositions. You know, some of these prepositions to some of us might mean more things like for. You know, you can't really chant for. Others might use in where Christ died in our place. But here what Paul is doing on purpose is using that because he's, he's trying to elevate the attention of Christ himself. And how the outflow of God's love by Christ's death is given over to people for these people. This idea talked about of God giving a propitiating death for people. It's like he's almost diverting. So it's not like physically, comically, or cos cosmetically, cosmically, cosmically. It's not like he's cosmically putting away God's wrath from people. But in our place condemned he stood. God's wrath no longer has any place on our shoulders because it was all placed on Christ. Nevertheless, Christ truly saves people by dying instead of them dying, to put more simply. So this word for wonderfully shows the love of God at the center of the text here. And the thrust of this passage is not on the recipient, but on the provider. So Christ is the revealed fullness of God. He's the very image of the invisible God. It's staggering that God, the Son of God, Jesus, Christ, the Messiah, would ever humble himself by coming to our world, willingly obeying the Father, knowing that at the appointed time he's going to die for ungodly people. Not only that, he's being born of a virgin and raised up in infancy. He's working as a carpenter. And you think about that, he's working as a carpenter with the same hands that created the universe. The, the humility that he displays here. He's perfect in all of his life. He's wise, all-knowing, all-powerful. But the fullness of God's love is seen in Christ's death on the cross. The attention that Paul continually weaves back and forth, giving attention that when God loves his people, it's because Christ died for the ungodly. Him giving himself over to death is the fountain of love 
that knows no end. Paul will go on to visualize for a couple more verses this love. But for our time tonight, we're reminded of something that we cannot remember too much. We can remember that the love of God is true because of Christ's death. And so just think to yourself. You can close your eyes if you want to. You can look down if you want to. Think of the cross on Calvary. And what do you feel? Do you feel saved? Redeemed? Fought for? Do you feel hope? Do you feel encouraged? Bold? Astonished at his mercy, excited at what that means for the rest of your life. But along those things, scripturally, do you feel loved? Loved by God in spite of your weakness at the appointed time for you. Now the question is not, do you feel loved enough? But the question is, do you remember the truth of God's love enough? You can't bring more of God's love onto you than he's already given you. He's given Jesus' life for you. But do you remember it enough? Maybe for you that means setting reminders. Maybe that means for you encouraging other people with reminders or receiving rightly reminders of other people. Parents, you probably know that you can't tell your kids that you love them enough, even though they shrug their shoulders. And they're like, yeah, I know, Mom. Yeah, I know, Dad. But you still tell them, right? Do you still seek the knowledge that God loves you in the same way? Because it's right there that we can stare at. In our sentence, Paul is not completed that in our weakness, at just the right time, Christ died. But lastly, we can remember one more thing. We can remember God's love because of his mercy. So far for weak and hopeless people, and at the right time, God dies for people he saves. And here you see the mercy of God's love. But remember the character of the people for whom Christ died. For the ungodly. He says in the following verse that it wouldn't be too far stretched for someone to die for a great person. It's not even too far stretched for someone to die for a good person. But to die for an ungodly person. That just seems unreal, doesn't it? Earlier, the audience of the letter was described as weak or helpless. And that is well and kind, but here they're described stretching it out more as not just weak physically or spiritually, but sinful. Elsewhere, they're going to be described as sinners or godly. They're going to be described not just as sinners, but actually enemies of God himself, completely devoid of godliness. Nowhere in them, around them, or from them is anything godly. To use my example earlier of me going in as a defensive end and playing against tight ends, to to play out that example, it's not that I would be taken over by those tight ends, but me in my deadness of sin, I'm not even allowed to play on the field. I'm disqualified to even be in the arena because in God's holiness, he has has nothing that is unholy around him. His holiness would destroy anything unholy around him. But yet in his grace and in his love, He doesn't just die. He dies for the ungodly. Jesus dies for the ungodly. And it's there at that place in our spiritual deadness 
where Christ's death actually redeems us. Romans 9 says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Not just I'm not good enough to receive God's grace. I'm not even alive to feel God's greatest. Yet his spirit revives our soul, the scriptures say. Only Christ's death can save us, which is good news because our sin and our sinfulness remind us of why we needed to be saved. So can you remember the love of God if you consider not only who saved you, the perfect Messiah, but also what he saved you from? You know, a lot of us in our testimonies, we might say that God saved us from selfishness or addictiveness or our pride, or our greed, or many other things that we could talk about, the sins where God redeemed us out of. What we're really saying is that we're saved from our ungodliness to Christ's righteousness. So Brooke and I watch Netflix a lot. And I think I've used this, I haven't used this example before, but alluded to it a little bit. One of my favorite shows on Netflix that Brooke would never watch with me is the show called The Crown. You know, this British uh, almost miniseries of, of ladies love it. So there you go. But what I love about this, about this miniseries is how it describes the majesty of a queen when she's crowned and she's, they're placing robes around her and she holds all the things that signify her power over the kingdom and her control over the world and the regality that flows from her even beyond the throne. And yet God in his love When he dies for the ungodly, he wipes away our impurities and wraps us with his righteous robe. Co-heirs almost of the risen king, the Lord of the universe. When we remember that, how do we not remember that God in particular, on purpose, by design, loves us? Like our individual names, not just the church, but us as people. Our passage tonight reminds us of God's love. We're reminded of the gospel, and in doing so, we get to enjoy what the gospel gives. This wondrous mystery that says that while we were still weak, Christ died. At the right time, Christ died. For the ungodly, us, Christ died. But also tonight, uniquely, in our case, we actually get to see the gospel play out along with the singing, along with the praying, along with the hearing of the word, and and just the fellowship of being around other believers, we get to publicly and openly and joyfully proclaim the saving death of Jesus by participating in the Lord's Supper. One of the most unique things that Christians get to do, one of the most joyful things that Christians get to do. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he ate dinner with his disciples in Mark 14, tells us that as they were eating he took the bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to them and said take this is my body and he took the cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly I say to you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink in the new kingdom of God It's truly one of the most unique things that the church gets to do where we get to come together and we get to proclaim publicly and loudly and joyfully that yes, Christ died. Yes, the tomb is empty. And yes, he is coming again. So the Lord's Supper is a sign of the gospel strongly 
saying and showing that the believer, us, redeemed people who Christ died even though we were ungodly, do not belong to Satan. We do not belong to the world. We do not even belong to our own ambitions. We belong to the risen Christ. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that the New Testament gives us and we receive it with joy. And it's practiced and proclaimed by the church often, we say, by receiving and giving drink and food. 